2 Timothy chapter 3 is our text for today. Until we start our next sermon series, looking at a few topical passages. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you once again for this privilege and opportunity to open up the Bible, to read your holy word. O oh Lord, your word is authoritative, it is inspired, it is inerrant. And we look to it, O oh Lord, now to instruct and edify our souls as we look and behold this passage, Father, we pray that you give us insight into, into the current times that we live in and what your word says about humanity and its condition. Help us as Christians, O oh Lord, to ever pursue holiness in spite of the culture and that we would be lights shining as an example to the godless. Father, I ask for empowerment now, Holy Spirit, for my mind that it would be laser-focused, that my heart would be set on you, and for my lips that you would anoint them to speak forth thy truth. And I pray that every heart here today would be tender to hear from you, that our ears would be unclogged, and that you, O oh Lord, would be all in all through this ministry and this time of worship. In Christ's holy name, amen. We're living through some rough times, aren't we? It seems as if just when we come out of the pandemic, and here we are on the verge, some people are saying possibly World War III. I don't think that that's going to happen, although I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But one thing I do know is that we're living in difficult times. And the Bible says that, that there will be difficult times as Christians. And the question is, when we do live through these seasons and through these times, how do we adjust? Coming into the 21st century, it's been a, a, it's been a ride ever since the year 2000. 2001, we saw the World Trade Center uh, attacked and collapsed in New York City under an attack from a foreign enemy, something that's never happened in the history of the United States. We engaged in a war on terrorism for a good 20 years, and 
It's not as if that war has ended. It's still going on. It's just not spoken about anymore. And uh, we've watched society within America morally degenerate in the last 20 years in a more rapid pace than it did in any times previously. We've seen great economic recessions. And as we approached the second decade of the 2000s, we had a global pandemic. Most of us here did not walk away from this unscathed. We've either gotten COVID or know someone who got it, and some of us may even know someone who died from it. And just as we think we're coming out the other side of that, we're living through a period of hyperinflation, and we have a nuclear nation like Russia threatening to uh, use nuclear weapons if anyone gets in their way of taking over the Ukraine. What kind of world do we live in? On top of that, here at home and around the world, we're seeing a cultural paradigm shift away from God, away from the gospel. We're living in what many will call a post-Christian world where secular atheism seems to be the glue that's uniting people around the globe. The cohesive there is the social media's platforms of Twitter and Instagram and all these other feeds that uh, unite people in the zeitgeist of our age. And so talk of living in the last days has been very common lately. I hear a lot of Christians saying we're living in the end times and every time something in the news cycle comes up, again I hear people saying we're living in the last days. The question is, are we living in the last days? Well, Jesus said no one knows the day or hour but the Father. The angels in heaven do not know, neither the Son, only the Father. Well, hear what the Lord said in Matthew 24, 3 through 8. His disciples were questioning him about his return, his second coming. He says, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But these are just the beginning of birth pains. I'll stop there. These are just the beginning of birth pains. Very interesting metaphor the Lord uses here. He's using the illustration and the metaphor of a woman who's in labor. At the end of a woman's pregnancy, she's, she's about to give labor. She begins to have birth pains here, which are, are a reference to the contractions. They come on very mild at first. They're pain. It's a nice jolt, acute pain, and, and, it, and then a long period of time goes, and, and then another one comes, and, it's, and it hits hard. And the closer you get to delivering the baby, the pains get stronger, they're more intense, and they become closer. All right? the, the, the gap in between each contraction gets shorter, and the pain gets more intense, until finally you deliver the baby, which is the greatest pain of all. Getting ready, right, Betsy? <laughs> what I'm describing is the birth of the messianic age. And like a woman in labor, there's contractions. And these contractions are seasons. And they're seasons that are characterized, what Paul says here 
in 2 Timothy 3 is difficult times. That word times can be translated seasons. Like the woman in labor, these are contractions. They're difficult. They're hard to endure. But these are just the beginning of birth pains. Throughout the church age, we see that these contractions come. There's a season of great intensity of pain. Then there's a period of peace. Then there's intensity of pain. And as we get closer to the end, the contractions become more intense and closer together until we have the birth of the messianic age. Well, in one sense, the messianic age has already come, right? We're in the already, but not yet. The kingdom of God is here, but its consummation is yet to be complete. And that won't happen until Christ returns. And that brings me to my passage today, because Paul says, understand this. In other words, pay attention, listen. In the last days, there will come times of difficulties. What does Paul mean by these last days? In the last days. This, this phrase is used often in the Old Testament and it's pointing to the coming messianic age, as I just said. It's a period of time that's ushered in at the appearance of Christ in his first advent and will conclude with his second advent. The days began as soon as Christ's ministry on earth began. In fact, the apostle Peter acknowledged this. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon all those who were in the church in the upper room and they spoke in different languages, communicating the works of God, they were wondering, people who heard, are these men drunk? What's going on? And, and Peter, standing there in verse 14, said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. He's quoting from the prophet Joel, saying, in these last days. In other words, these last days have begun. What are the last days? In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, tells us long ago and many times in diverse ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world these last days have begun the apostles believed that they were in the last days and this is not merely to say that they believe the return of Christ is imminent, which they did. But they understood that the messianic age had arrived. That the of God's spirit on all flesh. And so it is that we live in this time period between the first advent and the second advent of Christ. One foot in the present evil age and one foot in the kingdom of God waiting for the consummation, waiting for Christ's return. And in that period, there are contractions, there are birth pains, and there are seasons, Paul says, there will be, there will be very difficult seasons. As we learned about Paul last week, his first trial before Nero gets him an absolution. The case is dismissed, and Nero is a kind and gentle leader. But a few years later, Nero would become the most terrifying to the Christian church that ever existed. He would be 
He would be in every way, shape, and form a type of the Antichrist. And so difficult seasons will come. There will be contractions. There will be times where it will be difficult to endure as a Christian. In fact, the word there means wild, fierce, dangerous. And throughout history, that has always been the case. So as we're living in the current day that we're in, it is not as if this is something unique. It is not as if this never happened before. Go back 100 years. The turn of the 20th century. Everything seemed nice and good, and it was the age of automation. The automobile was invented. The Wright brothers got the first airplane off the ground. And shortly later, we used those same planes to start World War I. More people died in World War I than any other war in history. One-third of European men were killed in World War I. It was brutal. And just as we were getting home from World War I in 1918, we brought something back with us from Europe, the Spanish flu. Within a couple of years, that killed millions of people right here in America. And then, after we got through that, we had the Roaring Twenties, and we thought everything was okay, and boom, stock market crash, we had the Dust Bowl, America went into the Great Depression, and it's something we haven't seen yet again. People starved, people lost their homes, their jobs, their kids, they lost everything. And just as we got World War II began, the German Chancellor Adolf Hitler decided he was going to resurrect the German Empire and the Third Reich, and slowly but surely made his way across all of Europe, plowing down everybody who was adverse to war after World War I, slaughtered millions of Jews. And just after World War II, we thought we were out of that, the Soviet Union arises and kills millions of people, and Mao Zedong comes to power in China, and he kills millions of peoples with his policy. If you lived years ago, you would have thought you lived in the end times. In fact, many theologians, many pastors, and many Christians who lived through all that thought they lived in the end times. You lived in the 1940s, you would have thought Hitler was the Antichrist. J.R. Tolkien thought he was living in the end times. His whole series on the Lord of the Rings was a portrait of what was taking on in the world, what was going on in the world. Then things slowed down, and we went back to some normalcy, and here we are again. History repeats itself. The contraction comes again. The birth pain comes again. They're getting closer. They're getting more intense. Are we getting closer to the end? Every day we are. Are we there yet? I don't know. But let's see what the Bible tells us which will characterize these difficult times and help us to understand more of what Scripture is saying. So Paul gives us a catalog, a catalog of characteristics here. And there's 18 characteristics, 19 if you include, um, the part that refers to false teachers, uh, starting in verse 8. And in that catalog, they, they can be broken up in very different ways. I've seen a variety of ways that, those, that, that this list is broken down. And it's not much different than any list of vices that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to the end. You can see a very similar list of vices describing ungodly culture. And what is he describing? He's describing the pagan culture of, that he lives in in that day. 
or First Timothy chapter one. He he gives a list of the lawless. The law is not for the godly, but for the lawless, and gives a list of vices. And so we, we're used to seeing these lists. But in this list, I think that what we're seeing here is the description of the character and attitude of the godless, and what happens to a society when it's devoid of God. And I want to look at three aspects here. First, is that when you look at a society that's devoid of God, their, their understanding of love is corrupted. Right? What, did, what does the Bible tell us that our, that our expression of love, our priority of love should be? Well, the lawyer who asked Jesus, what are the greatest commandments? He says, well, it's this. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is, this is what the Christian call is. This is what our duty to God is. The whole love summed up in these two commandments, right? The first table of the law deals with our love to God. And the second table of the law deals with our love to our fellow man. This is, this is what believing in God is. This is what being a person of God is. This is the law of God. It's, it's righteousness. You want to be righteous? You want to do the right thing? And it's a life that's filled with love for God and you cannot love your neighbor unless you love God. And you cannot love God, by the way, unless he first loves you. Right? We love him because he first loved us. And so those who are born anew, those who have experienced the love of God, love God, and as a result of loving God, they love those who are created in the image of God. But the gods have all that inverted. And so three loves are described here that describe fallen human condition. The love of self, the love of money, and the love of pleasure. All three are described here in this passage. Love of self in verse 2, the love of money verse 3, and the love of pleasure verse 4. In fact, we could describe these loves as narcissism, materialism, and hedonism. They're the three main isms. In fact, if you look at those three, uh, um, if you look at those three categories, pretty much every temptation that exists, every sinful temptation that exists in our life falls under one of those three categories: the love of self, the love of money, and the love of pleasure. And so we look at self, what we're talking about is unabashed selfishness, narcissism. We like to think that we're selfless in giving, but Sinful humanity by nature is exceedingly selfish and self-serving. In fact, it's the chief idol that we bow down to worship. But perhaps in no other period of time have we seen such narcissism as we do in our day. It is baked into our culture in ways that we've never seen. Our whole advertising scheme is designed to appeal to our narcissistic tendencies. Social media. I, I don't have to give commentary on this. But Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, you go down the gamut. It is built on the premise that people are narcissistic. That they want to put pictures of themselves posing and looking in a certain way. They want people to follow them and if they don't get a like, they fall apart at the seams. It's the core of society. In fact, Paul goes, in, in, within this context, Paul describes this love of self as proud, arrogant, and swollen with conceit. 
People who love themselves, their egos are the size of small planets. They think they're the center of the universe. They think they're God's gift to the world. They have a God complex. Everybody owes them, and everyone should give to them, and they're there to take and to be, uh, receive worship from others. And if you don't bow down, they will make you pay. The narcissist is so in love with themselves that everyone exists for their welfare and benefit, and they're blind to it. You see, self-love is the symptom of pride and arrogance. One of the things about pride is people who are proud never know it. Pride is one of those sins that you're blind to. I'm sure that none of you are sitting here and think you're proud. None of you probably, oh, I'm not proud. That's exactly the problem we're dealing with. In your denial of your own pride, you are blinded to the pride that exists within. Because anyone who thinks that they're not proud is, is, is not really, doesn't really know this book. Pride is the mother of all sins. And when others bring out our pride to us, we should be humble enough to listen. It is an ugly sin. And it blinds us. And usually everyone sees it but us. Then there's the love of money. I don't need to say too much about this either because it tells us in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Hear what it says in verses 9-10. through Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Again, that word, that same word used for birth contractions. It's not money that's evil. Money is a tool. It's a piece of paper. It's a, it's a designation of, of value to a certain currency system. That's not evil in and of itself. We need it to make transactions. All right? It's a tool. It's when you love money and live for money and exist for money. When that's all that matters. And why do people, you know, you wonder, why do people make such a big deal about money? It's because of what money could bring you. Money brings you freedom and independence and security and pleasure. Which brings us to a third love. Right? There's an old saying, money can't bring happiness, but it sure does help. Right? I mean, you're going to be a lot happier if you're you know, living in a, in a house with, with security and then live being homeless in the street, yes, there's a, a sense there is some kind of happiness. It's why we go to work and it's why we earn our daily bread. We want to enjoy some kind of stability and security. But it's when we have, as the scripture says here, the desire to be rich. When we're not content. You know, the Bible says, he who loves money never has money enough. You see, because you reach a certain status and you say, well, I want more. It's not enough. You know, we're keeping up with the Joneses. We always got to have something new and something more luxurious. The more you seek to be satisfied with these things, the less, the more hungry you'll be. The love of money is very empty and vain. You see, what happens is when we love money, we begin to, to, instead of using money as a tool and using it to love others, We use other people, we use them as tools to achieve our means of having more money. People become just tools 
And we see money as, the, as our love, as our, as our infatuation. Paul warns us many Christians have wandered away from the faith and, and have destroyed their world because they loved money. Back in the 1980s, remember the movie Wall Street? Michael Douglas in that movie, he was the arch villain. And there was that uh, catchphrase in it, greed is good. Greed is good. And it, it was a catchphrase that maybe characterized the prosperity of the 1980s. And that's really the way the world thinks, right? Greed is good. More money, the harder you work, the more you get, the more success you have, the happier you will be. Well, in the movie, the villain winds up in jail. But it's a character of many people who have corrupted themselves with a love of money. There are real-life villains like the Bernie Madoffs. What about people who sold their soul to be in Hollywood or to being successful music stars? They didn't get there without selling their soul to some extent, compromising their integrity, compromising their faith. I found one thing that is true. In this world, if you want wealth, if you want to succeed and be, have a lot of money, somewhere along the line you have to make a compromise. It's very rare that you can achieve great financial wealth and success without compromising somewhere along the line. In some cases, God does bless us, and, those, and we maintain our integrity, we maintain our moral capacity. But I have lived long enough, and I've been in the business world long enough to see sometimes, and it's a very sad but true statement, at least in my experience, that sometimes the most successful people are the most compromised people because they've got to lie, cheat, and steal to get where they are. That's business. It's a dirty world. And that's why Christians who make money their God, that's why they fall away. But this is the world. This characterizes the world. It's the love of money that ultimately leads to all kinds of evils. War, conflict, self-destruction, murder, adultery, you name it leads to many evils. And then thirdly, love of pleasure. In fact, Paul says that such people are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 4. If you love yourself and you love money, ultimately you're going to love pleasure. This is hedonism. These are people who, who do not find satisfaction in God but are slaves to their carnal appetites. Whatever the flesh wants Whatever the flesh hungers for, you are driven to satisfy. The person who lives for pleasure, their God is their belly. People who live for pleasure merely live to indulge their sensual appetites, going from one experience and thrill to the next. Paul uses the terms, the phrases here, and within this context of unholy and lacking self-control, which fit in within the context of lovers of pleasure. Because those who love pleasure are unholy. They're separate. They're not consecrated to God. They cannot be because they're slaves to their passions. They lack self-control. Their impulses are not in check. If I want it, I'm going to take it. Whether it's indulging in a gluttonous lifestyle or being a spendthrift, or whether it's uh, living in overt sexual immorality, and that seems to be the greatest expression of that today, isn't it? Ever since the 1960s sexual revolution, we are on a de- 
downward spiral, spiral of moral degradation. I was just reading in the news the other day. The spring breakers are in Florida. Miami is overrun. The police are overrun. Stores are saying, please stop it. Please get this in check. Why? Why the college students are running around naked doing things that ought not to be done in public. This is what we've come to as a society. The whole, there is unlimited pornography available to people through the internet. Sex outside of marriage has become the norm. If you wait till you're married to get sex, people look at you like you're weird today. Homosexuality and transgenderism have become mainstream. And if you dare oppose it or think it's immoral, you will be punished and rooted out from the vanguards of our secular society. It's as if all restraint has been lifted. People do whatever they feel like. They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We've seen seasons like this in times past, Sodom and Gomorrah, Israel in different seasons, the Roman Empire, ancient Greece. And guess what? In each case, it precedes the collapse of society. Whether we're teetering towards the second coming of Christ or the collapse of America, no society this immoral can last. It will fall. It will collapse. Again, it goes back to the difficult times. It's difficult to endure. It's difficult to live in such times. The Bible tells us that Lot's righteous soul was vexed when he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's how we feel many times, don't we? Living in this world of, of culture, living in this uh, corruption, we're not immune. And I think that that's really what we have to see. Every Christian who falls away from God, every issue that I've seen of Christians who, who, who come into sin, to great sin, and to, uh, uh, who, who walk from the faith, those who come under church discipline, in every case it's one of these three inverted loves that leads to their downfall. Because all temptation springs from one of these three things. Love of self, love of money, love of pleasure. If you don't love God, you're going to fall into one of these, one of these three loves. Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. And as you have a divided heart, eventually you're going to go on one side of the fence or the other. You can't hold it both up. Secondly, we looked at the corruption of love. There is corruption of relationships. As we look at society the way it is, one of the things we see is that with people who have a love of self, love of money, love of pleasure, don't get along too well. And I'll read through the list of, of vices. The two main categories that I see here is that there are those who are abusive and there are those who are disobedient to parents. I bring up those two categories because they're on two opposite ends of the spectrum. When we think of abuse, we think of those in power. Those who are in power tend to abuse their power. They abuse their authority. And we've seen great many examples of this. People have lost trust in the government. People have lost trust in police departments. They've lost trust in uh, uh, church leaders. Why? Because so many have abused their authority. They have misused 
their authority. Instead of using their authority for good, they use their authority to take advantage of others. Why is it that whenever I read the news, I read of someone who is abusing their authority, whether it is the school teacher who's seducing their students for sexual pleasure, or it is someone who's a business owner who is uh, taking advantage and using his co-workers to work overtime without paying, or parents uh, who neglect their children, or police who abuse their authority, mistreating citizens. There are a plethora of examples And this is what happens when people are lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. They become abusive. I was recently reading a story about a man who used the PPE money that came in from the pandemic. He spent $60,000 on Pokemon cards. Seriously? I mean, this is what someone lives for and exists for? This was an adult and a child. This was an adult. Like a $50,000 from the government. That's abuse too. Right? We're abusive. But then there's the disobedience to parents. It's interesting that this is noted as a vice both in, in here and in Romans chapter 1. And there's a reason for that because parental authority is the most basic authority that exists in society. If children don't and will not obey their parents, they will grow up to despise all authority. If a is not respected in the home, those children will grow up to become adults who despise authority. And when you have parental authority completely dismissed and rejected, you are going to have a society of anarchy. Look around you. We are in a society of anarchy. It's chaos out there. Romans 13.1 says, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. We are seeing a deterioration of society from within. We're living in one of those difficult seasons. Paul goes on to describe other destructive Forces to relationships. People are ungrateful. A lack of gratitude. When, when people lack gratitude, it is, the, it is the grossest form of ungodliness. Look at Romans one twenty one. In Romans one twenty one, when Paul describes a society that's been abandoned by God, he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The person who is godless cannot thank God for the basic things of life. Nothing characterizes a godless culture more than people who complain. America is the most blessed country in the world. Every one of us here have more than most people on the planet Earth do today. Every single one of you is living a better life than three quarters of the human race this day. Let me just remind you that. Three quarters of the human race live in abject poverty and do not know where their next meal is coming from and they do not have adequate clothing or food. And what do we do? We complain. We complain about the blessings we have. God blessed us with homes, we complain about our homes. God's blessed us with families, we complain with our families. God's blessed us with jobs, we complain about our jobs. 
blessed us with so many rich things. And when we have nothing left to complain about, we complain about the weather. Ingratitude is characteristic of the godless, not the Christian. God smote many in the wilderness because they grumbled against him. That's why it says in Philippians 3, do not grumble or complain for you are lights in this crooked and perverse generation. They're unappeasable, irreconcilable, Paul says. The godless, these difficult seasons, they're people that love to argue. Nothing can placate their caustic spirit. They thrive on conflict and controversy. They cannot live in peace with harmony. Look at our society today. We're people addicted to outrage. The whole Twitterverse is a dedication to people who cannot be placated, who cannot be appeased. No matter what you say and do, the Twitter mob will come out and be outraged about something else. I am not on Twitter. I will never be on Twitter. And I hope to God no one here is ever on Twitter. I read about it, but I don't want to be on it. It fosters this controversy. This, this is the way. I'm offensive. I'm I'm going to cancel you. We're going These people who live in difficult times. Slanderous, the art of spreading false information about someone, mischaracterizing their actions to make them look bad. The word slanderer in Greek is diabolos. When you mischaracterize and you lie about someone and you, your words are used to make them look bad and harm relationships with other people, you're doing the work of the devil. Just look at the media. I don't care what station you watch, what news channel you watch, they're all engaged in the work of Diablos. Treacherous, those who betray and disloyal, brutal. The word here is the word used for fierce lions. People are like animals. Look at the violence in our day. Look at how, how human life is so disregarded. Train tracks to be more so far. There, there's just no regard for human life anymore. I just woke up this morning. What I read is that a shelter housing women and children who were trying to shelter from the war in Ukraine was bombed. No for human life. Reckless. People are those who plunge headlong into their wickedness, do not heed any warnings of danger, because as the text says, they're swollen with conceit, they cannot be corrected. While this is true in the unbelieving world, all these characteristics, what about God's people? Because what captures, what, cat, what, what, what end caps this is what it says in verse 5 having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. You see, in one sense, this is describing the godless society, the godless culture that we live in, the difficult times that we may live in. But Paul here is also saying there are people in the church who profess to know Christ 
who act the same way. They are a form of godliness. It's an outward appearance of godliness. They go to church. They dress appropriately. They, they know how to act publicly. But in private, what does it tell us? It says, it says that they deny the power they're in. In other words, there is no power. The power to live a godly life is through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you do not have the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, you are going to be just like the culture around you. These are those who, as Titus 1.16 says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their actions, by their deeds. The life is inconsistent with the verbal profession. There are many, many people who verbally confess Christ, but the life is completely inconsistent. The pattern looks more like we're reading of these vices than it does of the person who's been born of the Spirit. That's what makes it so difficult to live in such times. It's one thing when you know who the enemy is out there, but it's another thing when you don't know who the enemy is within. And that's where the greatest persecution starts. Paul's message is quite clear. Have nothing to do with such people. Avoid such people. What does Paul mean here? He means two things. Number one, he is referring to excommunication. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers, the idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. This is the world. This is the ungodly. You're surrounded by them. You go to work every day. You, you, you're, you're, this is, you can't avoid Unless you go live on Mars, maybe Elon Musk will get your trip to Mars. You'd have to go out of the world. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or is a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, don't and eat with such a person. For what am I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Churches ought to be committed to practicing church discipline. When sin is known in the church, it should be dealt with. When sin is not repented of, the proper steps of church discipline as outlined in Matthew chapter 18 should be exercised. When they are not, churches become unholy, corrupt, and lose their light. But secondly, I think there's a personal application. If you happen to know personally Christians who are behaving like the godless world that you're living in, you really shouldn't hang out with them. Do not even associate, do not even share a meal. Why? because they will be a corrupting influence on you. The corruption of sin is deep. 
This is why it says, turn me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Verse 1, brothers, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Do you know what the implication is there? Is that even in trying to restore someone who is in sin, the corrupting influence of sin could bring you down in the process. Therefore, those who are spiritual, those who are mature in the faith, ought to deal with such a thing. I'm going to stop there. I would have liked to have gone on to deal with the latter part, but time is getting away from me. Let me just say this. What could we learn from this? We're in the last days. Within the last days, there will be difficult seasons. I believe we're living in one of those difficult seasons. The lesson, the most important thing we could take away from this is that we would pursue holiness and not allow ourselves to be sucked into the vacuum and the black hole of the godlessness of our culture. When you live in a culture like we do, when you live in a season, the whole reason why Paul says there will be difficult times, it'll be difficult to endure. So how can we endure? How can we possibly get through such a season? I'm going to show you how. Turning your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 2. There are two ways. Revelation chapter 2 tells us, and I'm looking here, in verse 3, in the Lord's corrective reproof to the church of Ephesus, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. The first thing that we need to do is get back to our first love. If you do not love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, you are either going to love yourself, love money, or love pleasure. And if you have any of those three loves, all the other corruptive devices that we read about will become characteristic in your life. Repent. Turn from these sins. And so here's what I want to tell you. If you're sitting here to me today and saying, Bob, that's not me. I'm A-OK. That's the world. That's the unbeliever. That's the godless thing. You are dishonest with yourself. You're not being honest with yourself. Look within, identify the areas of failure, and repent. Return to your first love. That's the first thing I want us to see. The second thing also has to do with our focus. It has to do with our focus. It's very easy to see just the peripheral, hear what's going on in the, in the here and the now, Right? We're looking at the horizontal. We look at the world. We look at the, uh, all the events. We're watching the news cycle. And, and it just seems so discouraging. And it's easy to say, this is horrible. I, I, the world is just going to hell. What, what do I do? Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. 
It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Keep your mind set on things above. Focus on the attributes of God. Focus on the glories of the gospel. Focus and set your mind on the eternal inheritance that we have. It's not easy. It takes discipline. Setting your mind takes discipline. It means being plugged into the word. It means being rooted in prayer and deliberately intending to focus our mind elsewhere. It means saying no to the news cycle down from it and, and, and I'm preaching this not just to you I'm preaching it to me we need this because it's very easy to be captured and captivated by what's going on around us instead let our souls be captivated by the revealed word of God amen let's pray father in heaven I thank you for your word I thank you for this timely message and almighty God May it speak to us. May we not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And Father, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, those who are void of the power within, void of the Holy Spirit. I pray that they be born again. That it would not just be a form of godliness they possess, but that they would possess you, O Lord, within. I pray that you would grant faith to those who are faithless, strengthen those who who are weary, and may we continue in these difficult times to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.